0: And welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is George Contreras, Professor of Law at the University of Utah S.J. Squinney's College of Law. We will discuss his article, Suagenericide. So welcome to the program,
1: George. Thanks very much for having me.
0: <laughs> so I got to tell you, This title is one of my favorite I've seen in quite some time, and I can't wait (laughs) to talk a little bit about the title and sort of what it means and why it's such a sort of funny and appropriate title for the piece. But before we do that, I was wondering if we could spend some time just kind of situating listeners in trademark law and the concept of genericness in in trademark law. So, so what is a generic mark? And, and how do generic marks relate to other kinds of marks in trademark law?
1: Right. It's a good question. So the fundamental basis of trademark law is that we give legal protection to words and other devices that indicate to consumers what the source of a good or a product is, right? So that you see the red aluminum can with the Coca-Cola uh, word on it, you have some idea about what the quality, whether you think it's a good quality or bad quality, is of the drink inside of that can. It indicates to you the source of that beverage. Um, there is a whole spectrum of strength of trademarks. And, you know, things like Coca-Cola are quite strong. They're quite distinctive but you can have much less distinctive marks as well, marks that are either just suggestive or descriptive, or at the bottom end of that spectrum, uh, you have words that cannot be used as trademarks at all. Um, and those are what we call generic terms. They're not you know, generic marks, they're just generic terms, generic words. And those are words that just describe a general category of things like chair, or table, or car. If I want to become a car manufacturer, um, I can't really call my new car brand car, right? That, that's a generic term that describes this entire category of products. I have to come up with some other name like Lexus or Mercedes-Benz or Prius um, to distinguish my car from other types of cars and to indicate the source of the car.
0: Right. So a generic mark or a generic term, I rather, is really just a word that refers to a, a category of products or like, it's just the, the noun maybe that we use to name whatever it is that we're talking about, as opposed to something that'll tell us what particular product we're, we're looking at or where it's coming from.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Uh, the generic term is is a category of products, and you can have many different specific brands or producers of products within that category. And we don't allow uh, any one manufacturer to get trademark protection for the generic term. So there's a concept in trademark law called
0: genericide. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that is and and what it means.
1: Right. Sure. So in the abstract, when we talk about uh, marks being generic or not, um, there are certain legal standards and tests that we talk about. But in order for a mark to become generic, somebody actually has to do something. Uh, This doesn't just happen sort of naturally of its own accord. And for a mark to become generic or for a term to be declared generic, there are two of legal processes where that can happen. One is at the Patent and Trademark Office when the trademark examiner reviewing an application says, you know, um, you want to call your new car, car? You can't do that. That's generic. So in the examination stage, a term can be called generic and a mark application can be uh, rejected. Second, after a mark is already granted by the Patent and Trademark Office, um, it can be challenged as generic later on. And and this can happen in a few different venues. There are procedures within the Patent and Trademark Office to, uh, to challenge or oppose these marks. And this can also happen in litigation. But these procedures are all pretty similar. And basically somebody challenges the mark and says, okay, well, you got a trademark on that particular word. Um, but for better or for worse, it is now considered a generic term. And and we've seen this happen from time to time as uh, marks that have been registered have become um, so common in their usage that they become generic. And that's what we call genericide. Um, it's you know sort of a, a pun derived from the word homicide, <laughs> to kill, right? And uh, when you... Um, challenge a mark as being generic um, and succeed, and the mark is basically killed uh, and uh, is no longer uh, enforceable. And that's what we call genericide.
0: So how do we know whether or not a mark is generic? And is that a different question or the same question when it's asked by the examiner or when it comes up in a litigation or uh, some other form of, some form of kind of challenge to to the mark itself. In other words, is that like uh is that like something that is done to the mark or is it like a description?
1: A challenge so genericide is not an official legal term. That's just a term of art that's used in the in the field. Um all of these challenges have their own particular procedural requirements and burdens of proof and so forth, but they all generally um ask the same question, which is whether this term uh, describes a general category of goods and services or whether it indicates the source of those goods or services. The examiner asks that question and the court um, will ask that question when a mark is challenged in court. Um, I mean, again, there are procedural differences, but Um, probably not worth uh, going into. That's the basic question.
0: So maybe you could give a couple examples of marks that at one point were good trademarks that indicated source, but later became generic marks, and sort of just give listeners a sense of sort of how and why that might happen.
1: Sure. There's a whole range of these uh, former trademarks that, uh, that, that have become... Generic um, things like escalator um, and cellophane, right? These today are common household words. We we use them to describe like a moving metallic staircase or a uh, you know a plastic wrap for food. At one time, uh, there was a general elevator or uh, sorry escalator company, um, and it it viewed escalators as uh, you know as as a proprietary name, an indication of source today of course we don't um, and there are there are dozens of these and they're actually very fun lists of them um, out there in the literature um, you know aspirin um, is one uh, there they're, they're really there are quite a few I mean it, it seems
0: like the process is almost like a double-edged sword in a sense because on one level a producer of a good would want the name of their good to be so ubiquitous that consumers would use it as a synonym for the good itself. But on another level, if it gets too ubiquitous, then it sounds like they might run into trouble. Is, is that a fair assessment?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Mark owners have to be very careful. And this is precisely the trap that many of these older mark owners have fallen into. Um, they like for everybody to call the moving staircase an escalator, Uh, Because then when a department store wants to install one of these moving staircases, who are they going to call? Well, of course, they're going to call the escalator company. Um, So that's great for marketing. But then uh, without an alternative generic term that you can uh, use to refer to the thing, to refer to your competitor's products, um, you're going to lose your mark. Right. So what
0: do companies try to do then in order to, you know, encourage consumers to have awareness of the mark that they're using, but not to conceptualize it as a synonym for the good or service itself?
1: Yeah. So smart mark owners um, have developed a whole series of tactics that they use. And and probably the best known of these in the trademark literature is a Xerox corporation. Um, You know, we don't really make that many photocopies these days, but Xerox was, of course, a pioneer in the photocopying industry. And uh, there was a time when, when you talked about wanting to photocopy something, there's a good chance you were going to say you are going to Xerox it. And the pieces of uh, paper that came out of it, you would call them not photocopies, but Xeroxes. And the Xerox Corporation spent lots and lots of money, millions of dollars on advertising campaigns and public awareness campaigns to convince people to call that act photocopying and to call the papers that came out of the machine photocopies and to then distinguish its photocopiers as Xerox photocopiers. Um, that, That worked, but to do it, Xerox for decades ran advertisements in newspapers, um, and on radio, um, trying to convince people that uh, their thing was called a Xerox photocopier and not a Xerox. Um, and you know, things uh, other other companies have tried this as well. So um, scotch tape, um, Kleenex, Vaseline, all of these companies um, went through some efforts to create, um, generic terms to describe really a product category that they invented um, with a generic term so that they wouldn't lose their proprietary mark, right? So we have Kleenex facial tissue um, and Vaseline petroleum jelly. Um, these types of um, these types of tactics are you know are, are relatively effective. Um, the best one and the the most recent one. Um, has been an effort by the velcro companies. Um, velcro, as we all know, is that uh, uh, sort of uh, fastener uh, contraption that you use on uh, shoes and wall hangers and whatnot. It keeps things stuck together, and it's made out of you know thousands of these little tiny plastic hooks and loops um, that latch together. And there's a famous Uh, David Letterman episode where he puts on a so-called Velcro suit and gets thrown up against the wall um, and sticks there to show how effective the product is. Uh, But the Velcro companies got the idea that people are going to start to call this type of fastener, which which is old. It was invented 60 years ago, right? So the patents are all expired um, and copycats can come onto the market and you don't if you're the Velcro companies, you don't want everybody calling those um, imitation products Velcro, uh, because that should indicate your company and your source. And so the Velcro companies have put together this very clever set of videos, <laughs> music videos, which are available on YouTube um, that urge you, you know, not to use Velcro as a generic term to call the uh, the product hook and loop fastener. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to call it a Velcro hook and loop fastener, um, and um, you know the one of the lyrics is, uh, "If you keep calling these Velcro shoes, our trademark will get killed." Um, it, it's actually it's actually worth listening to. So normally, companies
0: are really doing their utmost to prevent the mark that you're they're, that they're using from becoming a generic term for the product category. But in your paper, sui genericide, you talk about this alter opposite or alternative phenomenon where companies or groups of companies might want to make a mark to kind of stipulate that a particular term is a generic term rather than a source indicating term. So I mean I I wonder what, if you could talk for a minute about why that's a particularly Kind of difficult or potentially difficult thing to accomplish in the trademark sphere, as opposed to how we would think about doing kind of an analogous thing in the copyright or patent sphere?
1: Sure. It's a really interesting distinction among these different types of intellectual property. So, patents and copyrights have mechanisms, legal mechanisms that are available, so that if the owner of a song, or a copyrighted poem or a novel wants to put it out into the public domain, they can do that. Um, with patents, if you invent something, um, there are numerous ways either to abandon it to the public by publishing it um, so that other people can't patent it, or if you already have a patent or patent application, there are procedural ways to abandon it. Um, and once you do that, you know, I invent a new type of mousetrap, Um, and I patent it, but then a year later I decide, well, I, you know, I'd rather just contribute this to the world for the good of mankind. Um, I can abandon my patent and then nobody else can get a patent on that mousetrap invention, right? I mean, it's known to the world. I was entitled to patent it because I invented it, but after I've abandoned that, nobody else can do that. Um, This is not the way the trademark registration works. And we see this happening all the time. Um, A trademark application can be abandoned because, who knows, a company goes out of business or it decides it doesn't want to pay registration fees or it has a mark for a while and then it stops using it. Um, For all of those reasons, you can lose trademark protection on a mark. But once you lose your trademark, then it's up for grabs again. Anybody else can claim it and register it as their own trademark. Um, And so there's no real way under the trademark law to abandon a term to the public. Um, And with genericism, there's no way for a company who wants their own term to become generic to declare that it's generic. Right. I mean, as, as we discussed earlier, the ways that marks are declared generic are either, you know, in the application stage by the examiner or um, in a litigation or an opposition proceeding later initiated by a third party. There's not just a way to slap a label onto a term and say, hey, I came up with this term, but you know what? I now want the word Prius uh, to be a generic term for electric cars. That just not available.
0: So George, in in your paper, Suid Genericide, you, you talk about this really interesting phenomenon in relation to the concept of genericide, in the sense that it's it's sort of like the analogue of what happens in in a circumstance where there's a risk or the possibility. That consumers will start using a term in a generic sense. And it seems like it sort of reflects something sort of really fundamental about trademark law, which is like that, you know, when it comes to a mark becoming generic, companies can encourage consumers to use the mark in a brand way. But if consumers don't do what they're told, then there isn't really anything the companies can do about it. And in a weird way, it seems like exactly the same thing happens in the other direction. It's like the companies can encourage consumers to use particular terms as generic terms, but they can't force consumers to use the terms in in that way. Is, Is that the right way to think about what's going on here?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, a company saying this term is or is not generic in our legal system doesn't really carry much weight. Um, what courts and examiners and others will want to do is look at things like evidence, consumer surveys and so forth to see how consumers are actually behaving. And, and you're right, we can, or companies can try to convince consumers to say one thing or another but they can't force them to. So why is this a problem then for for companies? I mean, I, I can understand why a
0: company would want to preserve the trademark quality of a brand name, even if it started to become sort of used by consumers as a generic or a potentially generic term. But why would companies want to make a term generic, right? Why would they want to place something in the sort of, Trademark public domain, and and what might frustrate that move.
1: So the reasons you would want to do this um, go back to sort of the middle of, of the twentieth century, right when when companies who were competing with each other realized that it would benefit all of them if there were some generic word that could describe their product um, that they could then differentiate. Um, you know, using their own brand name, something like elastic, right? Um, that's a term that we consider today a generic term. But, you know, back in the 40s when elastic, I guess, was first invented, um, that wasn't necessarily known. So a number, you know, 10 different clothing manufacturers all think it would be good if they could, you know, use the term elastic to describe their you know, swimsuits, uh, waistbands, but the Haynes company, you know, and the uh, the polo company, whoever makes these products, um, none of them are going to register that as a trademark, but somebody else could, right? So what happens if the Haynes company and other clothing manufacturers all start to call their thing, you know, elastic waist swim trunks, and then somebody comes along and tries to register that as a trademark? That could be a problem for, All of them. And so there was this thought that it would be good if industry members could get together and decide on some generic terms that nobody would trademark, right? Decide up front that the word elastic would be generic, that none of them could trademark it. They could all use it to describe their own products. Um, And so that principle. Today, I think we can understand it most clearly in terms of drug names. Um, You know, drugs have three different names. Every drug does, right? It's got a brand name, it's got a generic or a common name, and it's got a chemical name. Um, So in theory, the chemical name is generic. It's, It's usually a really long, complicated thing. Um, that, that consumers can't pronounce and, and nobody's going to remember. Um, on the other hand, it's useful to have a term that describes a drug uh, generally based on its chemical class and, and what it does. And this is important for consumer safety, right, um, for prescribing and, and so forth. So, so let's take the example of ibuprofen. Right? Ibuprofen is a common name, a generic name for a category of pain medication. The chemical name for ibuprofen is RS-242-methylpropylphenolpropanoic acid. doesn't exactly flow off the tip of your tongue. So with that chemical compound, drug manufacturers got together and decided, okay, that long, complicated RS-242 chemical name, we're going to call it something that we're all going to call it And none of us are going to get a trademark on that name. And that name is ibuprofen. Um, And then on top of ibuprofen, manufacturers will get trademarks on brand names like Advil and Motrin, right? Advil and Motrin are both brand names of drugs, and they are both ibuprofen. They're pretty much the same thing, or they have the same active ingredient, um, but they differentiate themselves based on brand. And so the manufacturers of Advil and Motrin and all the other ibuprofen products did get together and come up with the name ibuprofen um, as generic. And none of them want somebody to register uh, the name ibuprofen anywhere because that would then, you know, claim as a trademark some term that they're all using. And yes, they could potentially challenge it. But um, wouldn't it be better if we could all just agree up front that it's going to be generic from the start. So one of the things I thought was really interesting and I hadn't – I was unaware of before
0: I read your paper was that at least for a period of time, there was sort of like a a sort of programmatic institutional effort, it seems like, almost to preserve the genericness of certain terms. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of maybe speculate about why that stopped.
1: Yeah. So – Starting in the 1940s, um, the US government tried to be very proactive in helping US industry in a variety of ways. And the way this first started was because US manufacturers of drugs and, and other products were starting to notice that in other countries, say in Europe or in Latin America, Companies were beginning to seek trademarks on words that, in English, seemed generic. Right, things like vitamin um, and folic acid. Right, we might consider these generic terms in the U.S. in English, but you know, take in in, in Germany, the word vitamin does not exist as a, uh, a word in the German language. And so it kind of sounds like a novel term that should be uh, able to be trademarked. But if a German company gets a registered trademark in Germany on the word vitamin, well, then what happens to all of the US companies that are exporting vitamins to Germany? Um, they can't call them vitamins anymore. And so the um, believe it or not, the Department of State actually, the Department of State and the Department of Commerce um, got together and realized that this could be a problem for U.S. companies, and they created this really interesting program in the late 40s called the Generic Word Program, where the government would hear complaints from U.S. companies about different words that were being trademarked abroad, and then we would, through diplomatic channels... Um, tell these foreign governments, hey, you know the word "vitamin." We see that some German company has tried to register it, but you shouldn't register it because it's actually a common English word. Um, and you know that diplomatic process had mixed success. Um, eventually, funding ran out for uh, for these government programs, but but they were taken up to a degree by private sector programs, um, and so especially in the, um, the pharmaceutical industry and some others, and trade associations, including, you know, the, uh, the International Proprietary Association, <clears throat> the American Medical Association, all got together to try to uh, systematize and stop sort of spurious registrations of these terms that everybody thought should be generic. And, and that led to um, an interesting international system of designating terms in particular industries as generic. Um, we have it in the drug industry. We have it in the pesticide industry, in the synthetic fiber industry, right? You, uh, you know, as, as we moved from everything, clothing all being made out of cotton or wool to things like rayon and polyester, uh, clothing manufacturers are required by law in the U.S. to label their products as, you know, 50% polyester, 50% rayon. Um, Those words, polyester and rayon, were created, um, believe it or not, by the Federal Trade Commission, um, who was initially put in charge of coming up with these lists of generic synthetic fiber names so that people could accurately label their products. Again, as we got into the 80s and the idea of shrinking government uh, began to take hold, government agencies, the Department of State, the Department of Commerce, the Federal Trade Commission got the idea that, well, you know, we really shouldn't be in the business of coming up with lists of synthetic fibers and pesticides, right? That That's best left to industry associations. Um, and so... Uh, this, this task was sort of fobbed off to groups like the American National Standards Institute and ISO, the uh, International Standards Organization, and, and uh, they came up with these names uh, through industry task forces, and um, eventually, in some cases, they're recognized by the, uh, by the government agencies um, that, that used to be in charge of them.
0: I mean, it seems like at least when it comes to sort of this idea about foreign words, there's at least a kind of echo of that overseas program in U.S. trademark law as well. And so far as there's, as I understand, like kind of a, a bar, or a statutory bar almost on on using generic foreign words as trademarks or registering them as trademarks in the United States, at least in certain circumstances. Do, do you know if those kind of had a similar source or did they come from different places?
1: Yeah. So that doctrine, um, the foreign words doctrine is is kind of a mixed up one. Um, and there there are cases that, um, you know, so, so you're right. And the rule in the United States is you can't register as a mark something that is a generic term in a foreign language. And so you get cases around things like the La Posada Hotel, um, you know, la posada, is that something, is that, is that a, that's a Spanish word. It kind of means an in, uh, but is it a common word? I mean, in, in Latin America, you don't really talk about, you know, that anymore. It's kind of an archaic term. Um, so, so it's controversial. Um, it's even more controversial and, uh, fragmented in, in other countries. And I would recommend Bob Brownice at, at GW has an excellent paper that he and a European co-author just published about this idea of, um, you know, foreign words and uh, how they can be registered in countries where that's not the native language. The paper is is about uh, a Spanish registration of the word matrasin, which is the German word for mattress, um, but is not the Spanish word for mattress. And so it's similar, it's it's, it's a similar set of issues. uh, but but also somewhat different, uh, because with the sui and side movement, you have companies affirmatively you know, trying to get out ahead of these trademark registrations, not challenging uh, registrations um, that there are, but but sort of precluding others from making these registrations in the first place.
0: Yeah. I mean, and and from the paper, I mean, it sounds like this is especially important and, you know, kind of especially an issue when it comes to standard setting and sort of creating industry standards. I mean, to what extent do you think the trademark office is, you know, sort of conscious and sensitive to the need for this kind of standard setting? And is it consistent with the way that the Trademark Office and the courts are kind of conceptualizing what it means for terms to be generic terms as opposed to potentially source-indicating trademarks.
1: Yeah, the issue of technical standards is sort of the new incarnation of the sui genericide movement, right? You have these programs that started in the 40s and 50s and kind of linger today. Um, But what I think the really interesting thing is is coming up in this standardization area. So, you know, we have standards that affect all of our electronic products from Wi-Fi and LTE, 4G and and whatnot. Um, We, you know, they're common household words today, right? The term Wi-Fi, everybody knows what it is, but it is also a trademark and a certification mark of a particular organization. And so they would argue very strongly that Wi-Fi is not a generic term that describes, you know, your wireless home network, but it is a particular standard, um, a a family of standards developed by this Sanders group called the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers Standards Association. Their number is 802.11, you know, A, B, G, N, A, B, what do you will. Um, So is Wi-Fi generic? There's a little bit of a debate about that. Um, But some standards bodies have actually tried to declare that the names of their standards are generic, which is potentially an odd move, right? The Wi-Fi Alliance, which owns the term Wi-Fi as a certification mark, spends lots of money registering that mark around the world and, and enforcing it. But you've got a couple of standards bodies So for example, the USB Interoperability Forum, USB or USB Implementers Forum, USB-IF, right? That is the group that um, sort of maintains the USB standard. USB, of course, is this uh, ubiquitous standard um, that uh, we use for memory sticks and plugging peripherals into into computers and all sorts of things. Um, We use it for charging uh, these days, that was a standard developed by a group of companies, um, and uh, there are a bunch of um, terms associated with USB. But the USB forum itself declared in, in a, um, a trademark trial and appeal board proceeding that their mark, that USB itself, was a generic term. Why did they do this? Well, because somebody was trying to register another mark that contained the term USB in it, USB house um, the USB forum intervened and opposed that mark, and, and the principal argument is that, look, this term that we invented, that we created for this standard, is actually a generic term. So no one should be able to um, register a trademark using it without disclaiming um, the, uh, the the term um, USB in their mark. Um the, um, the World Wide Web Consortium has gone a step farther, right? World Wide Web Consortium is responsible for lots of the standards um, that relate to the World Wide Web, which is a public face of the internet for most people. And so standards like HTML and XTML and HTTP, um, these are standards that W3C is responsible for in some way. And on their website, they list 20 different terms, including HTML, HTTP, XML and a bunch that you know you've probably never heard of as generic terms. Um, an interesting like a really interesting approach right I mean especially HTTP is not even advanced through w3c. There's another standards body that has primary responsibility for it. but they're out there saying use it, use HTML anybody should be able to use HTML. Um, it just describes generically this protocol for um you know uh, uh for for hyperlinks um, that everybody should be able to use so
0: george in 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 closing, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on what your observations in this paper tell us about the nature of genericness in trademark law because it, it couldn't help but strike me that like you know we normally conceptualize it as sort of descriptive like you know this mark has become generic because it's used in a generic way but it almost seems like the phenomena you're describing like sort of underscore the extent to which there's like a policy element to the concept of genericness as well in other words we sort of identify potentially terms and say this is a generic term and because it should be a generic term
1: right and we generally give very little respect or, or legal recognition to sort of statements that companies make unilaterally about genericism right otherwise coca-cola could just go and say you know what I think the term Pepsi is a generic term and we should all treat that as generic um, you know you that's it's obvious that that kind of thing shouldn't happen, and so for that reason, yeah, we have generally insisted on having some kind of evidence before us, uh, before a court, before an examiner, for something is deemed to be generic. But you know that actually costs money. Um, you have to have a motivated challenger um, to do that, and they have to spend some money. And not only that, they might not they might not win. Um, if you're challenging Coca-Cola's mark, you know, no matter how smart you might be, you know, the company has a lot of money and just might legally outgun you or outmaneuver you. And so when we're talking about or the public domain of, of names and words that we use in the language, uh it might be preferable to have an easier way for things to be classified as generic, other than an adversarial proceeding um, that is, you know, depends on finding somebody who's uh, financially motivated to bring it and uh, having the resources to mount that challenge and then to be successful. Um, And sort of the conclusion of the paper is, well, we don't have such a mechanism yet. Um, But there there are some modest potential changes that could be made to the law um, by which these declarations of genericide could potentially be recognized. Um, maybe they could be recognized if they are not unilateral declarations by one company, like the Coca-Cola Cola company, but by some representative group of companies, like the uh, the pharmaceutical industry or the uh, you know synthetic textile industry, where everybody gets together and decides that okay, ibuprofen. That should just be generic from the outset. We don't want to have to fight some guy who's registered ibuprofen in 20 different countries from the beginning. Let's just have maybe a legal presumption that if this group gets together and by some consensus decision making process, they agree that ibuprofen should be generic, well, maybe we should presume, create a legal presumption that it is generic and trademark examiners should potentially. recognize that that presumption which which today they don't
0: cool yeah no that makes a lot of sense well thank you so much for coming on the show today george it's been a real pleasure talking to you about this excellent paper and i hope readers will dig into it a little deeper because we've only really scratched the surface
1: yeah absolutely it was a fun paper to write and i really enjoyed speaking with you about it is so successful that everywhere you go you see the scratchy hairy fastener and you say
0: Hey, that's Velcro! But even though we invented this stuff, our patent lapsed 40 years ago Now no matter who else makes it you still want to call it Velcro You think it's awesome for us, we're famous But we're lawyers and it's causing us grief Cause there are trade trademark laws being broken It's all here in this short legal brief And we know that this is confusing Because Velcro branded who we are
1: If you call it all Velcro We're gonna
0: lose our circle This is called Hook and Loop This part's a hook This
1: part's a loop You call it Velcro seems ridiculous, this is a first world situation,
0: and we made half of a billion last year, I went to turn for my
1: last vacation, and we're asking you not to say your name, we took 60 plus years to build, but if you keep calling these Velcro shoes, our trademark will get killed, yeah! We aren't just doing this for us. We're doing it for all the successful brands that got so popular, people started using the brand names the wrong way. So please remember.
0: If you need something to clean up your socks, do it with bleach and not with If you have blood from a boo you made, this is a bandage and not a If you're exercising with someone you're dating, it's in life skating and not I know that bleep stuff is more fun to say, but if you keep doing it, our trademarks go away. This is a hook loop. This part's a hook. This part's a loop. You call it.